my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 2nd, 2011. We will be doing our light edition today. Currently uh, spending my days writing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Today, we're going to be doing our light edition. This is a uh, what we do on our light edition is I pick a singular topic and try to find somebody who like knows what they're talking about. And uh, if they're a Lutheran, well, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> got you know got to put my uh, my good team members up yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway um we've been uh, kind of going back and forth between Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's lectures on uh, Luther's commentary in the book of Galatians and uh, and Dr. Adam Francisco's lectures regarding Islam today we're going to be going back to Dr. Adam Francisco he will uh, this will be the next portion of his lessons on the uh, basically Islamic theology. This is Islamic theology part two. So if you want to understand the um, the logic and the thinking and the theology of Islam, that's kind of a little bit complicated. They don't have systematic theologies the way Christians do, and or dogmatic texts that you know kind of condense down the theology of the Quran. It's so uh, Dr. Francisco's uh, lecture here is actually rather interesting and very informative. So we're going to do that today and uh, and then tomorrow, normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Adam Francisco and uh, part two of his lecture on Islamic theology. 
All right, why don't we go ahead and get started? We've, we're way behind. Um, today we're going to look at the second part of this outline and look at uh, an outline of Islamic theology, of getting to sort of the, the depths of, or my old doctoral supervisor, the way he used to put it, was the deep logic of Islamic theology, or we might say Islamic mythology. Um, with that said, I'm going to go to just about up to about 11:25, and then uh, at 11:30 or thereabouts, I have to I have to cut out and get to the airport, so um, I won't be able to stick around for so long this time. Um, I've been told that later on this summer, uh, I think is it June? Later, the latter part of June, I'm going to be teaching again and. We're going to be looking at the reliability of the New Testament as historical uh, witnesses to Christ, but maybe we'll have one class on, or two classes on, on Islam then as well. Uh, but we'll let you know how that unfolds as time comes, uh, as time approaches. Um, last time we met, a question was asked, and I've been thinking about it ever since, so it's been ten weeks, and I've been thinking, or two weeks. Um, <laughs> It seems like 10 weeks, and I, I don't know why I've been thinking about it. It's either such a, such a good question or I was so, my answer was so poor that it stuck in my head. And the question was regarding why our civil leaders, our political leaders, insist on speaking of Islam as a religion of peace. And I think I said something to the effect that it's largely a strategic issue in order to keep what Muslims are perhaps friends with America uh, on board with us. It's a way to appease them. There's another way of thinking about it that I think is important for understanding today's situation. Um, if you go back to the 1990s, there were two major political scientists who published uh, essays and then, which eventually became books uh, that guided public policy on all sorts of things. The first was uh, Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. This is a fairly popular book. It started off as just a journal article, but caused a huge uproar, a backlash, um, and he was maligned by all, many of his academic peers. But as things turned out, Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, which argued that at the root of civilization are religious ideas, or theology, or we might say metaphysic, metaphysical ideas. And those fundamental ideas that shape civilization, when you compare them to other civilizations, do not cohere very well, if at all. And Huntington argued that in the future, he's looking, he's writing in the 90s, but he says, in the 21st century, in order to think about the world, our policymakers should take into account religious beliefs when it comes to dealing with other parts of the world, whether it be China or the Islamic world, which Huntington says, or said, quoting Bernard Lewis, has always had bloody borders. Um, Huntington was more of a realistic approach to uh, international politics. The other man who wrote, who became much more popular, and um, was, at least his ideas, were embraced by a large part of our policy-making uh, officials, uh, that was Francis Fukuyama who wrote a book, an essay first, but then a book called The End of History and the Last Man. And what he argued was after the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the collapse of uh, communism in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, he says this shows that democratic pluralism um, is, is, the more, um, is the strongest form of polity. 
And because it's fallen in the communist world, and democratic or communism has fallen in the communist world, and democratic pluralism seems to be taking off, he says we can bet that the rest of the world will start embracing democratic pluralistic forms of polity. Um, and he argued that once this happens, as this happens, and if we can help usher it along, what we'll see is the world will no longer be shaped by conflicts. For him, history is a series of conflicts. Once everybody becomes democratic in some sense, uh, then we'll enter a new era where history will come to an end and everybody will get along just fine. Um, he's not a utopian thinker, uh, but it's pretty close to it. He's since gone back on this, this argument. But it was that book or those ideas that really shaped especially American policymakers in their thinking about the late 20th, early 21st century. Um, and I would argue, or I think it would, it's reasonable to suggest that many of our, the folks in Washington still look at the world through this lens. That we can, if we can expedite or export democracy, perhaps force it on people, uh, then we'll all get along. As the Iraq and other places are showing, that may not, that's a kind of a simplistic picture of things. Um, anyway, that's the political science theory, and I think it helps us explain why our, or helps us understand why many of our policymakers refuse to call Islam what it is. It is not a religion of peace. They can use the term peace, but they mean something entirely different by it. It's a peace in accordance with Islam's uh, requirements, and it's a peace which relegates all non-Muslims to, at best, second-class citizen status. Uh, the term is dhimitude. Uh Now, today we're going to look at the theology of Islam, the particulars or the details of Islamic theology, because uh, this is of, of primary concern for the Christian. There are all sorts of what Lutherans would call left-handed kingdom concerns or civil concerns we have with Islam, and we certainly cannot lose sight of that. But when it comes to dealing with a particular Muslim that you might know, or just thinking about Islam as a Christian, it's, it's extremely important to understand the contours of Islamic theology. You'll, you'll notice, perhaps, that there are parts of Islamic theology, and we've covered a, a few of them, where Islam parallels, doesn't impinge on the Islamic or the Christian uh, historical theological narrative, but, but parallels it a bit, but oftentimes these parallels are at odds with each other. Uh, in, the interesting thing about Islamic theology, though, is that if you looked at the hundreds, thousands of writings that Muslims have composed, Muslim intellectuals and, and statesmen um, and scholars, you would be hard-pressed to find a book entitled something like Muslim Theology. According to Tariq Ramadan, the man I mentioned last week when I asked the um, videographers to edit that part out, um, Tariq Ramadan being the, the so-called Martin Luther of Islam, he argues in his book from 2005 that there is no Islamic theology. And what he meant by that is Muslims don't typically or historically haven't sat down behind a desk, read all sorts of books, and tried to develop systems of theology that they map out in systematic theological texts or that they put down in confessional texts. Uh, Tariq Ramadan argues, and many other Muslims, that the best or the only Islamic theology is the Quran. If you're to speak appropriately about Islam and its theology or its view of God and man, 
what you say as a Muslim or if you're a non-Muslim describing it must correspond to the Quranic texts. So you, one might think understanding Islamic theology is pretty easy. You just comb through the Quran. But the Quran, and Mr. Rowley's read it probably several a dozen times, perhaps. It's a very difficult text to get through. And some of the passages in there are so obscure um, that it takes some extra reading to understand just how Muslims have taken some of these texts. For example, uh, Quran chapter 7, verse 172, talks about the, these entities being or standing before Allah. And Allah says to them, Will you take me as your Lord? And they respond by saying, we will take you as, as our Lord. And there's no other context to the verse. You don't really know what's going on. Uh, as Muslim theologians have explained it, though, that refers to this primordial covenant that all human beings, before they were born at some point, and they don't speculate how it all happened, but be, at some point before our birth in time and space, our souls uh, stood before Allah. And Allah said, when you're born into the world, will you take me as your Rob, your Lord? And apparently we all said yes. Um, they squeezed that out of the Quran. Um, and it, for, in light of this, doc, what we might call doctrine, um, I would say that to understand Islam, one has to understand Islam around the matrix of Islamic anthropology. That is its view of man. Before we get there, though, we're going to start quickly with this doctrine of God. We all know that Islam is a monotheistic religion. It believes that there is only one God. The first part of the Muslim confession of faith is there is nothing worthy of being worshipped. There is no ilah in the Arabic. There is nothing worthy of attaching yourself to or, or uh, allying yourself with but Allah. And according to Islamic theology, Allah is one in essence, but also one in person, if he can be described or it can be described as a person. Um, Allah does not have partners, the Quran says over and over again. That is, Allah does not have a Holy Spirit, does not have a son because he had no, has no female consort. He is one in essence and one in person. So when you'll get folks out there, Muslim and non-Muslim, who will say Christians and Muslims worship the same God in essence. That's manifestly false. The Christian church has bought into this, though. Not our church, uh, thankfully, and there are lots of churches out there that haven't. But for the last four years, there's been this um, national dialogue going on that has actually become international called the common word between us and you. It was uh, pen, the first uh, document penned under this, this international dialogue is, uh, was penned in October of 2007, based out of Amman, Jordan. About 138 Muslim scholars, famous Muslim scholars and politicians, got together and put together an, a, a document that is a, addresses the Christian church, addresses the Pope, the patriarchs of the Orthodox Church, general secretaries, presidents of, of other church bodies. I don't think the LCMS got a copy, but uh, most other major church bodies did. And the document is Muslims petitioning Christians to join with them in common cause under the assumption that we all worship the same God and we all have some similar motifs in our religion. In Islam and Christianity, the document reads, 
both Christians and Muslims believe that the highest thing you could do is love God. The second most important thing you should do or can do is love your neighbor. And they argue, this document argues, that if, if uh, Christians would just acknowledge this, then Christians and Muslims, would, who comprise half the world's population, could work together um, in establishing global peace. Um, and the, one might or perhaps should expect this sort of thing from the Muslim world. Uh, the Quran itself, in chapter 3, encourages Muslims to call Christians and Jews in particular, but especially Christians, to a common word. Um, one should not expect, though, Christians to fall all over themselves trying to get on board with this project. Uh, shortly after the document was sent out in October of 2007, scholars based out of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, Christians of every stripe, started signing a, res a response document that was published in the New York Times and since then has garnered about, I think, 3,000 signatures um, from Christians from every, almost every church body, and some, including some very respectable theologians like John Stott and uh, J.I. Packer and others. They're not in the Lutheran tradition, but there certainly are, at least historically, have been stellar evangelical theologians. But in this document that they all signed, it says, it acknowledges, first of all, yes, we all do worship the same God, and we can all go about engaging in this international dialogue, striving towards world peace. As you read the document, though, as soon as you get to the second paragraph, the Christian respondents say, before we go any further, though, we want to do two things. Actually, one thing that has two components. We want to apologize to the Muslim world. First of all, we want to apologize for the Crusades, because apparently we're all responsible for a uh, 11th, 10, uh, 12th, and 13th century um, activity of the, the Catholic Church. And then it goes on and says, we also want to apologize for the excesses, and it puts in quotes, the war on terror, as if to suggest the war on terror isn't in some way legitimate. Uh, but then it goes on uh, uh, fawning all over Islam, and then comes to an interesting part in the letter where it says, and we, where it refers to Muhammad, not as the prophet of Islam, but the prophet Muhammad, as if to suggest, or at least throw the Muslim world a bone, to suggest that Muhammad might in some sense be a prophet of God. And there has been a long debate amongst uh, primarily missiologists, that is, theologians who are interested in the study of missions, over whether Christians can regard Muhammad as a prophet, because he altered the Arabian Peninsula's theological milieu. It used to be polytheistic. Muhammad comes and they embrace a monotheism. So that debate's been around for actually several decades within Christianity, but now it's become popularized. Following the common word between us and you dialogue that's still going on, they're having conferences all across the world now about it, um, the, the Congress or signed on to what's called House Concurrent Resolution 374. Uh, when they got wind of this document that Christian and Muslim uh, theologians and intellectuals had contrived, congressmen decided that they ought to put something together that says, we agree with this and we'll give whatever sort of support we can. HR, HCR 374 uh, was written by the first Muslim American congressman, Keith Ellison, from southern, I believe it's southern Minnesota. I think the 14th district, which is um, comprised of a very heavy 
Lutheran population. Mostly ELCA, though. Um, the other Muslim congressman that we have, uh, Andre Carlson, um, has Lutheran connections too, believe it or not. He has a bachelor's degree from Concordia University of Mequon. Um, I'd throw that out there. <laughs> uh, getting back to the theology, though. To understand Islam, um, first of all, you have to understand that it is monotheistic, but it is not a Trinitarian monotheism. If we could maybe describe its monotheism, we might say a transcendental uh, monotheism. For the Muslim, the God or Allah is outside of time and space, has always been there, and rarely, in fact, never penetrates time and space. Sometimes he uses angels like Gabriel to send down his message. He's done that in the past with Muhammad, say, says uh, Muslim theologians. But he's aloof, largely aloof of creation. Does not intercede through miracles. Um, it's not that he's not concerned with what goes on in the world, not concerned with what people do, but he's aloof. But at the same time, he knows everything. According to the Quran, Allah is as close to Muslims and everybody else as our jugular veins are as close to us. Kind of an imposing picture. Um, but he's not close in the sense that he's sent a son or that he actually reveals himself without using a created medium like the angel Gabriel. Um, the term that you will see Muslims using to describe their doctrine of God is this term on your outline, uh, pronounced Tawheed. A way it's oftentimes uh, translated from the Arabic is un the unicity of God. God is holy one, but also he's the only one, the only one who really does exist. Everything else, everything within creation, according to Islam, doesn't necessarily exist. It's contingent upon God's created activity. Uh, there are some Muslims who will go so far as to say that every moment is contingent upon God's created activity. That is, every second that's passed since we first got together today, about 25 minutes ago, um, was a process of God's continuous creation, destruction, creation, destruction. Every single moment, God is rearranging atoms and recreating reality for us. And some will go so far as to say that everything that happens um, is all predetermined by Allah. Every single thing, all your deeds, your thoughts, um, what's going on across the world, everything is already orchestrated or preordained and created by Allah. Now, getting to the real, I think, the heart and soul of Islam, at least for our purposes, for at least understanding Muslim people, we have to look at the Islamic doctrine of creation. I told you in the first two weeks when we looked at the Muslim worldview, the general worldview, that they certainly believe that God created ex nihilo, from nothing. Um, in creation, there's a strong sense in Islam, in fact, it's, it's incumbent upon Muslims to acknowledge that God created creation from nothing, but within creation, he didn't just create these, the physical things, the see, things we can see, but he also created a bunch of unseen realities, the invisible powers, in Islam, there's a strong belief that the universe is teeming with jinn. My joke is, you've probably heard it before, it's probably on tape from a couple weeks ago, uh, not Bombay Sapphire or anything good like that, but genies. Um, these spirit creatures, they're, they're like human beings, except they don't have bodies. They're not angels. 
Um, they, they have free will, uh, but the universe is teeming with these things. And it's the jinn that caused you, and in my case, Bombay jinn, that caused me to do things and think things I wouldn't normally think. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I do like gin, but not a whole lot of it. It's, I'm getting too old for it. Uh, but the, the, these jinn are the ones that whisper in your ears, according to Islam, to draw you off the straight path. That is the path of Islam that you know by virtue of your creatureliness. Um, in Islam, every, as I suggested when we first started talking today, or I started talking, in Islam, every human being, everything, every creature, animal, plant, and even the universe itself is described as Muslim by nature. That is, it submits perforce or by necessity to the law of Allah. And Muslim theologians will say, if you look at the universe, it operates in an orderly manner. It has to obey the physical laws of the universe. If you look at most living creatures that you can see, plants and animals, they operate in an orderly, predictable way based on their instinct, but in, that instinct is ordered and placed there by God. Uh, they all operate in a, a predictable way because they're all operating in view or under Allah's law. There's one exception in Islam, and that, though, that is human beings. Human beings, unlike the rest of creation, have been given free will. Well, the jinn as well. Um, given free will... However, according to Quran chapter 3 or 30 verse 30 and Quran 7 verse 172, all human beings, even though they have free will in some sense, uh, have, are by nature, their essential makeup, their genetic makeup, they're Muslim. It's just that they've gone away from their Muslimness. There's a, uh, this isn't from the Quran, but from a hadith, uh, a, a tradition that where Muhammad says every human being was born a Muslim. It's their parents or some other external distraction or other religion, Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrian, or some other philosophy that has drawn them astray. But every one of us, every human being, if we thought hard enough and stopped attaching ourselves to worldly philosophies or false religions and things like of that nature, we would, by nature, do what Muslims do. There's a passage in the Quran, I don't remember chapter and verse, that says, when the sun rises, you see the shadow of plants hit the ground. That's a sign from Allah that that's to be our, our natural disposition before him. We're to be submitters to Allah. Um, according, also, according to Islamic theology, it's this, this sense that we, or this idea that we've gone astray that requires the Muslim community that has been woken up, that has become enlightened in some sense, it becomes incumbent upon them to struggle or pursue us to get us to come back on track, to get us to come back on what the Quran calls the sirata mustaqim, the straight path, uh, which is something that's laid out in the Quran, but we could know it by our nature, according to Islam. So you could say there's a strong natural theology in Islam that says Islam is the religion of nature and it's the religion of everybody in here they claim it's just that your parents baptized you or did something else to kind of screw you up uh, moving on to prophets and books we've talked a bit about this 
there's a strong notion in Islam, the Quran, you find it all over the place where Muhammad talks about the gospel, the Torah, the Psalms as if they're legitimate, divinely revealed books. The problem is they've been corrupted. They were originally, in a sense, Islamic books, but the texts themselves, or at least the interpretation of these texts, have been corrupted. So they're not all that useful unless you interpret these texts through the lens of the Quran, which for, according to the Quran itself and according to the Muslim world, is the most perfect book. It's God's eternal speech. So if it is God's eternal speech, it is a good lens through which you should look at the world and and everything within it. Um, Unfortunately, it's not. It's a false, contrived book. Um, In the books, or in the Quran, you get this long train of the prophets that we talked about, this long sense of there being prophets ever since the time of Adam up until the time of Muhammad. I want to focus in on one of these prophets just to highlight just how different Islam is from Christianity. Um, That is the prophet Isa or Jesus in the Quran. Jesus is mentioned over a dozen times in the Quran. Chapter 19 has a pretty long extended discussion about his birth and his early ministry talks about uh, Mary, a virgin Mary, uh, giving birth to a boy named Jesus. When Jesus comes out of the birth canal, it's not that explicit in the Quran, but that's the way Muslims understand it. He looks up at Mary, who's a bit distraught. She's outside of uh, Jerusalem underneath a palm tree, wondering how she's going to tell her her kinsmen um, when she goes back to her hometown how she got this baby, though she's not because she's not married. And Jesus looks up to Mary and says, don't worry. Uh, chapter 19, verse 33 of the Quran, uh, Blessed am I on this day, I am a prophet of Allah. Uh, blessed am I on the day I will die, and the day I will rise again from the dead. Uh, you get in chapter 19 and other places in the Quran, you get this, these, all these stories from non-canonical gospel traditions of Jesus uh, breathing life into like clay pigeons, not the kind you shoot, but a little trinket, a knick-knack that... I won't say anything about my wife and her knickknacks because uh, it's on tape. But a little nick, he breathes into it, and all of a sudden the pigeon becomes alive and flies away. He does other uh, miraculous things, uh, heals the sick, raises the dead. Um, and then when it comes to the end of, of Jesus' life, actually not the end of his life, but the end of his ministry in the Quran in chapter 4, verse 157 and 158, a really interesting thing happens. You have Jesus who's conceived of as a prophet to the, the nation of Israel, a prophet of Allah or a prophet of Islam to the nation of Israel, um, is the, the, the picture is, according to Islamic theology, and the night when he is betrayed, because he's a prophet of Allah, and Allah would not allow his prophets to undergo shame, uh, Jesus looks around the room knowing that he's going to be arrested. And the, the Quranic commentaries say, that he asked his disciples, who will take his place on the cross? And there are a couple different traditions. The more popular one says that Judas raised his hand. And as soon as Judas did that, his face was transformed, a divine facelift of some sort, so that he looked like Jesus. The roof of the room they were in opened up, and Jesus was pulled into heaven, escaping death. Quran 4, 157 and 158 says, The Jews did not kill, nor did they crucify Jesus. Instead, he was taken up into heaven. Um, He's up in heaven, according to Islam, awaiting the last day or the final judgment, where he will come back down um, 
And when all the dead are raised in Islam, according to Islam, the Christians will be on one side, LCMS folk way on the other, the, the far end of that group of people. And Allah is going to say to Jesus, pointing to the Christians, according to Quran 5, 118 and 119, uh, did you teach these people, these Christians, to worship you, that is Jesus, as God? And Jesus says to Allah, I would have never told them something like that, that you didn't give me or didn't instruct me to teach them. So what you get in the Quran is a, a disowning of Christianity by, by the Muslim prophet Jesus. Um, so you will get out there. I remember going to New York City when I taught at Concordia Bronxville. We'd go down, to, we had to do field trips. They forced us to do field trips for college students. Um, and so I'd take them down to the mosque uh, just to see it. And there was always this marquee, this scrolling marquee outside of it that says, we believe in Adam, Moses, and all the other prophets, uh, Jesus and Muhammad, as if to suggest that Muslims and Christians believe the same thing about Jesus. The Jesus of Islam is, a, is, is the Jesus of Islam. It's not the historical slash biblical, the same thing, Jesus. It's an invented view of Jesus that seems to have been cobbled together from traditions from the Arabian Peninsula in the 6th and 7th centuries. You find some of the teachings in the Quran about Jesus. Um, they're certainly not in the, the, the Gospels, but they're found in things like the Arabic infancy gospel, these spurious uh, forgeries that were developed in the 3rd and 4th century and subsequent centuries in the, uh, the period of late antiquity. Uh, what about Muhammad? Muhammad, according to a Muslim, they will tell you is the equal of Jesus and every other prophet. Muhammad is not a special person in Islam in the sense that he's divine. He's just a prophet. At the same time, the way Muslims speak about Muhammad is that they will say he's the most perfect man. That is, if there's somebody to emulate ethically, uh, and just in terms of your behavior, it would be Muhammad. He's the most perfect, quintessential, archetypal man. Uh, there's one tradition, and if you're easily offended, um, close your ears, I guess. Um, I'm going to tell you it anyway. That says that Muhammad was so perfect in his virility, that he would pass, around, pass amongst 40 different women in one night. I remember reading this, uh, thinking, and I did the math, and I said, no way, impossible. <laughs> um, and I asked, I asked my, uh, this, my supervisor, I said, what's up with this? Because you guys regard this as a sound or legitimate tradition about Muhammad. And he says, yes, it sounds a bit far-fetched, but what you don't understand is that he was... He was not supernatural. He didn't have any special powers or anything like that, but he was what every man should be. Virile, um, aggressive, but at the same time, um, passionate, perhaps even compassionate, Muslim might add. Um, so in understanding how Muslims behave, at least traditional-minded conservative Muslims, you have to understand that for them, Muhammad is the exemplar. Uh, all the more reason to, to read Robert Spencer's book, The Truth About Muhammad. I mentioned that, I think, three, three or four weeks ago when we first met. Um, that, will, that text will disclose from Muslim sources just what Muslim traditions teach about Muhammad, apart from all the stuff the liberal writers like to put, 
And they're like how he liked to take care of orphans and, and widows and things like that. He did do that according to the traditions. But on top of that, he also beheaded Jews, um, engaged in adulterous affairs and, and other things. Married a six-year-old. Um, it's not so bad, they say, because they didn't consummate till she was nine, as if that makes it better. Um, and things like that. Um, so, but, but as far as the nature of Muhammad, Muhammad is seen as another prophet just like any other prophet in, in the Islamic tradition. He's not any uh, more special than Jesus, Moses, Adam, Noah, Abraham, or anybody in between. Um, one of the things, if you read through the Quran, that looms large in the Quran. I, I would be willing to suggest that maybe about at least a sixth or a fifth of the Quran is filled with eschatological or apocalyptic language. There's a real strong sense, and it's part of the Muslim confession of faith, that history is linear. It started at a certain point in a time when God created from nothing, and history will move along to a certain end. There will be a last day, according to Islam. On that day, all the dead will be raised up and will be judged in accordance with their deeds. Uh, as a Muslim sees it, every one of us, in our, Muslim and non-Muslim, there are no Muslims here, but if we had some Muslims here, we'd include them as well. Every single person throughout the course of their life has at least an angel, some say two angels, watching over you, recording everything you do. Your good deeds go in one scroll, your bad deeds go in another scroll. And when the last day comes, the picture in the Quran is, these scrolls will be opened up for all to see. And depending on how the weight of your deeds, where they come out in the scale, that determines where you're going to go ultimately. Whether it be to eternal paradise, where if you're a man you'll enjoy 70 or 72 virgins, black-eyed virgins who only have eyes for you. Um, and women, according to the tradition, have men serving them, men from Africa um, perpetually. Uh, if you're found to be wanting, you've done too many bad deeds that outweigh your, your good deeds, and you're not a Muslim, you'll, go to, you'll spend an eternity in hellfire, where your body and your beliefs will be fuel for the fires of hell, as the Quran puts it. That's the picture you get in the Quran. There are some passages in the Quran, though, actually quite a few of them, and this is part of Islamic theology. Muslims themselves debate over this. Some say that eternal punishment might be temporary. And so you will get Muslims out there that say, no, everybody eventually will be in, it, will be in paradise forever. Um, but the traditional line, or the traditional belief is that all non-Muslims, and in fact perhaps some Muslims, will be in hell forever. You can, ultimately, according to Islamic theology, you cannot know where your fate is because of the strong belief that your fate has been sealed by Allah, even before he created you. You think Calvinism's strong on predestination? Islam's even a little bit stronger than 110-proof Calvinism. Um, very strong belief in predestination. That, and this has caused a lot of debate in the Islamic tradition. Some say, well, if God has predestined you to do these things and end up here, what's the point of doing good deeds? Why not just... Do whatever you want, because you're going to go wherever you, wherever Allah has predetermined anyway. So you do find a bit of tension in the Islamic tradition over whether you can know whether you'll be saved or not on the basis of your deeds. Uh, the traditional line is that you simply can't. It's 
this for the Christian, this sense of uncertainty that opens up all sorts of opportunities for speaking with Muslims. It may seem intimidating to speak to Muslims. I dare say, though, you'll find your average Muslim is pretty easy to talk to. Most of them are very hospitable. Um, uh, not all of them. You can get some grouchy ones. I usually run into them. Um, <laughs> but they're fairly hospitable. And as you, you nurture friendships with them, you'll find that they actually like serious conversations. I'd avoid political things like Israel. That's a hot-button issue. Um, uh, but you will find that they do have a, some of them at least, have some respect for conservative Christians who maintain conservative, classic Christian identities. And they're oftentimes shocked to find that there are Christians still, who still hold to classic Christian doctrines. I've found it over time and time again um, where uh, most Muslims, the, the Christians they encounter are those who are part of interfaith dialogue, who typically tend to be liberal types. And so you'll find that they have a bit of respect. They'll have a bit of respect, perhaps, of you if you're conservative in your religious views. And you'll find that they oftentimes, over the course of a friendship, will be open to conversations. There are two things, uh, if I can offer, two practical suggestions that the Christians should focus on in speaking with Muslims. Um, one is this idea or this uh, drawing upon the sense of, if they have it, this sense of uh, what Luther would call anfektung, they must have when they really think about their fate. They can't know. You can know if you're going to go to heaven if you die in jihad. Most Muslims, at least here in America, thank God, aren't going to strap bombs to their bodies and blow themselves up. There might be a few, I, I don't know. Um, but most of them, if you push them on it, whether they've done enough good to know that, they've out, that those good deeds will outweigh their bad, they don't know, and they can't know. So drawing on that, what we might call existential side of Islam, which does lead to, or at least should lead to, an existential crisis, um, is of the essence for speaking to a Muslim as a Christian, in, um, uh, motivated by the gospel. Another point, though, is the, the apologetic point. Um, the Muslim denial, the Quranic denial that Jesus was crucified on a cross, is an excellent entry point into conversing with a Muslim on neutral territory. The crucifixion of Jesus has, of course, cosmic theological ramifications. On that cross... And in the resurrection, three days later, the sins of the entire world were paid for. But the crucifixion itself is a historical event. Um, I've used it several times. It's not, I'm not looking to win the debate necessarily, but I'm looking to crack open doors to the Muslim worldview. Um, and I've approached Muslims by asking them the question about the crucifixion. How is it that Muslims can deny something that is a, what I would call a brute fact of history, that Jesus was crucified on the cross? Um, their Quran says he wasn't crucified on the cross. We have not only eyewitness documents, companions of eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have other first century sources, Josephus, the Jewish historian, hostile sources, Tacitus, Suetonius, and other Roman writers, all, who all take as a matter of fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross. Why would, and the question I oftentimes ask a Muslim is, why would you take a text that purports to speak about a historical event 600 plus years after the actual event as more authoritative than a whole bunch of eyewitnesses 
and companions of eyewitnesses and historians from the first century. That's just a basic historical debate. It doesn't get into all the details of theology and the emotions that are involved with theology. It's a historical question. So in a pro don't, please don't be scared of Muslims, even though perhaps I've made you scared of them. Um, uh, and, and in approaching them, focus on the central issues rather than philosophical debates about God, um, perhaps uh, the politically contagious or, or politically uh, exciting uh, topics of jihad and Israel and things like that. Probably best to avoid when approaching Islam as a Christian. There's certainly room to approach Islam as a Christian, but acting as a citizen of the United States to deal with those left-hand kingdom civil issues that should concern us all. But in personal uh, uh, relationships with Muslims, as a Christian speaking the gospel to a Muslim, um, there are all sorts of opportunities that, uh, that uh, we enjoy here in America uh, with the Muslim community, especially as much of the Muslim community um, isn't so aggressive, quite, at least not at present. There certainly are some, though. Um, we're at 11.30. Uh, I can stick around for 10 minutes max, and then I've got to get on the road. Yes, sir. Uh, about, the, um, about the fact that you said in America that there's a lot of politicized sort of uh, middle-of-the-road uh, Muslims, but you said that for a Muslim to be guaranteed uh, heaven, jihad or, or yeah. death through jihad. So what's, what's to say that we're not going to see more of that in America as Nothing. they wish to be agreed? Yeah. Nothing. Um, that's the big uh, socio-cultural or, or socio-political or the terrorism concern is homegrown terrorism. Uh, you've got the sources. You've got all the ideas. And so you could easily, I mean, somebody could go to them with a, a particular imam who wants to push this type of uh, political ideology and interpret it this way and, and go about it. We've seen it happen with the, the, the Fort Hood shootings with uh, Hassan, uh, Abdul Malik Hassan, I believe was his name, and others as well. So there's nothing to keep it from happening except some argue if we could, we could um, encourage and even and patronize a very liberal form of Islam, throw money their way. Uh, uh, raise their, their uh, spokespeople to superstar status, even though they go against the Quran and they're denounced by the Muslim world. Or another way, and the way Mark Stein once argued in uh, National Review, in a great little article, one-page article called Apostasy and Moderation, uh, he says, Muslims aren't going to embrace hardcore secularism, which a lot of people want them to embrace. That's apostasy to them. Um, and they're, they're smart, they have enough common sense to realize that life, the universe, doesn't make sense if there is no creator. So they need a theology. And he says the answer to the problem with radical Islam is that the only solution for Islam, ultimately, is an evangelizing Christianity. Uh, and he goes on, he says, but this is probably the worst answer of all because Christianity doesn't evangelize anymore. It's lost its conviction that it's true and that it can square off and meet the challenges of Islam. Um, that's, that's several months back in National Review. Um, if you want, it's a great little piece on dealing with radical Islam uh, in, in the face or in view of all these claims that we can just moderate or reform Islam. That's a, a temporary solution, to be sure, or perhaps, but it's not a long-term solution, especially for a Christian uh, you know, interested in, in 
and speaking the gospel to a Muslim. Uh, one more question. Uh, okay. You're on, sir. <laughs> uh, on 9-11, on 9-11 uh, I was puzzled by the actions of the people who knocked down a, uh, a building in New York. So I bought a copy of the Quran, and I'd read it a couple times. And I read it in the same spirit I would read the Bible. In other words, these, this is what they believe, this is what I believe. And as I read along, uh, the Quran essentially demolishes Christ, exactly what we, uh, uh, what we believe. And uh, as a matter of fact, the opening prayer is, uh, uh, praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds, the master of the, uh, of the world, of uh, whatever you call it. Okay. And, uh, and I kept uh, reading and uh, finally got down to chapter 5, verse 51. And it says, oh, you believe, do not be friends with the Jews and the Christians. They're friends of one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you are friends with them, you're one of them, and Allah does not guide the, uh, uh, the Jews and the Christians. So, and then I read a little bit further and finally got further down into it. And the bottom line seemed to be, if you can't convert the, uh, the world, kill them. So uh, would you uh, like to comment on uh, 551? Do not be friends yeah. with the Jews and the Christians. Yeah. That's a tough yeah. one. It's been, uh, yeah, there, there's an earlier, or it's later in the Quran, but earlier in Muhammad's life, 2946, where Muhammad tells Muslims, um, uh, when you come across people in the book, Christians and Jews, uh, deal with them not kindly. Don't deal with them harshly and tell them that our God and your God is one. Um, your, your scripture and our scriptures are one. That is, they say the same thing. But then you get chapter 5, verse 51, or chapter 9, verse 29. Kill the people of the book. That's all been, excuse me, abrogated. Or the earlier stuff, 2946, has been declared illegitimate, according to the other passages. Another passage, Quran 98, verse 6. Um, the people of the book and the al-mushrikun, the, the polytheists, that is all non-Muslims. Even if you're a monotheist, even if you're part of the Abrahamic faith, a Jew or a Christian, um, are the lowest or the most detestable of all creatures. That's a later, a, a Medinan chapter in the Quran, even though it's way at the tail end of the Quran. Um, and that's how historically, it's not every Muslim, but historically Islam as an institution has viewed Christianity and Judaism. These are corrupted religions. Uh, the Jews and Christians work together. They're friends to themselves. They're not friends with Muslims. So don't think, even if a Christian um, opens up his hand of friendship to you, don't think that you can trust him. Uh, that, that's just part of the, the Quranic view of things. Not every Muslim, of course but the Quranic view of things. And so therefore, because it's the Quranic view of things, it's the way Muslims should view things. But thankfully, they don't always follow the Quran the way they should. Um, that's, that's it. Sorry, you're the most detestable of all creatures. It's <laughs> 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 not you. <laughs> Excellent lecture. So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.